Shall I turn my camera off now? Or, so, or should we leave I may on? as well, yeah. We know what you look like. Okay. <laughs> hey, and so. you look great. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the latest, greatest episode of The Network Age. I'm Bitchel Ritson, here as usual with my co-hosts, Timluk Miptev, Nilrun Mardux, and of course, we have a very special guest today, Owen Barnes, known on Urbit as Lockruck Fonmec. Owen, how are you do- doing today? Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Yeah, doing great, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And Owen, I think you, you really are a, a man of many talents and interests in the sort of web extended Web3 universe. So I think we're going to get ahead of a bunch of different topics today. Um, but I think before we get there, we'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about your background and what you got you into the space and some of the questions you're most interested in right now. Sure. Um, yeah, I would describe my background as sort of curious and technical. So um, I'm self-taught programmer. I started uh, messing around with the web when I was age 16, back in the days of like network, uh, Netscape Navigator, Internet Explorer 3. Um, I, I saw the birth of CSS and uh, started like integrating that into web pages. And then, of course, progressed to you know, JavaScript and Ruby on Rails and Node.js and Go and a bit of Clojure as well. Um, and I've sort of been coding most of my life at various positions and different companies. And um, But I'd say the last few years were spent more sort of absorbed in what's been going on with Ethereum. Um, ever since uh, Vitalik came to London like 2013 and started giving demos, I didn't fully understand what it was, but I knew there was something very interesting and magical about it. And then over time, I think I've just started appreciating decentralization more and more realizing, you know, that this really is our, it's, it's the way forward. When you see the sort of amount of um, censorship and the, the ability to sort of lose everything you've put in digitally on a whim of somebody deciding or even an algorithm deciding that you're no longer attached to the platform, I just think, well, we need a different way of storing our data, computing, and ultimately owning uh, our digital life. And that sort of very slowly over the years led me more to things like Urbit and decentralized computing. And uh, and that's really my focus at the moment. And is do you think that's still like the motivating question for you going forward? Like how do we make decentralization and, you know, data ownership, censorship, resistance, like a part of the everyday computing experience? I think it used to be. Um, but I think I'm now sort of focused on another thing, which is similar, which is um, I think ever since we've been playing around with all the sort of chat GPT demos and uh, codecs and things like that, what I'm most interested in now is how do we allow people who've got great ideas but don't know how to program to get those ideas into the world and how can we do it in a decentralized way so that they own their own data? I mean, everybody should own their own data and so on, um, but do it with the right values and principles. So that's really what's occupying my brain a lot at the moment. Can you clarify the but in that sentence? Like, have great ideas, but don't know how to program? Like, what kind of ideas are you thinking you would want them to be able to realize that they can't currently? Yeah. So I think right now, um, so... 
people talk a lot about communities and owning your own followers. It's something I've given talks about where I say, you know, it's very strange if you think about meeting someone in a bar, you obviously own that relationship. But if you meet someone on Facebook or Instagram, they do. Um, so owning your own audience is part of it. Um, but also wanting to do things with that audience, wanting to give them new experiences. Right now, that's something you need to be able to program a lot of different SaaS mm -hmm. tools together. Uh, you know, you've got to like, go read the API documentation. Not everyone can do that. So therefore, they've got these unrealized ideas in their heads, but they can't get them out into everyone's pocket, which is actually what I always think about is the amazing thing about programming is that you can have an idea and distribute it to millions of people in their pocket on their phone, and they can be using it within a few hours. So that is it's like closing that gap is what I find really fascinating. Do you think that, well, maybe these are complementary paths, but how much do you think that the path is, um, I guess, letting those people express it directly versus um, making it easier and easier for, you know, developers, you know, maybe in their communities to serve their need? Because I think... I personally feel like, while I agree with like the sentiment, I think people kind of underestimate now how hard life is even for developers or people trying to, you know, compose things or allow those new experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't really know what I would do if I was coming into web programming fresh today. I, um, I you know, without any of the history of the web or any idea of like what, a, you know, like, you know, if you think about we went to things like jQuery to Backbone.js to React to Svelte and things like that, like where would you start? You know, where, where even if you've got that bit down, then you've got to think about CSS processing and frameworks and Tailwind or do you use Pico but they both don't work together? You know, it's very, very difficult because we've we've built so many layers on top of layers Um and therefore, I'm really of the opinion that we should pretty much abandon this whole way of thinking in terms of the web and start again from scratch with a real sort of uh, print first principles base of like, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, and for that reason, part of my sincere belief is that we shouldn't be trying to augment the code that we're writing today and things like React and Formic and all those things in with AI, but we should start again from scratch. Um, I honestly don't believe that we can build any more layers on top of the web now. I think we're done there. We need to start again from scratch. And um, and so that so I'm not really in the sort of interest of helping uh, existing sort of developers with their tools at the moment. I'm more thinking like, how can we start again with a sort of fresh approach? Uh, the question of starting again is really interesting. And I think that obviously points towards something like Urbit that you know whose goal is explicitly to to start fresh and rebuild um, or not rebuild but build a new computing stack. But before we talk about you know existing tools or projects that are attempting that, I'm curious. You know, you mentioned first principles. If you were to start redesigning the internet or networking from scratch, what would be where would you start? What would be the thing that you would prioritize, and how might you approach a problem like that? Okay, so the first thing we need to do is really think about what a user interface is. Um, and I've thought about this, and I think the way I see it is that it's two things. First of all, is it's our interface to um, the human-machine interface. It's a bit where the sort of binary code meets the five senses of our, our human body. Um, and in one way, uh, you want to communicate as much data as efficiently as possible. 
But if you ask a back-end engineer to design you a user interface, what you'll normally get is uh, lots of different inputs, lots of different dials and gauges and numbers on the screen as efficiently as possible because you know, normally back-end engineers always think in terms of efficiency. But if you give mm-hmm. the same task to a designer, what they will do is they will take away most of the, the data, make the buttons a lot bigger, and think instead about what is the intent here? Like how does this interface make you feel? Particularly if you're transferring large amounts of money, for example, you, you know you want to put a lot of effort into how does this make you feel, not only throughout the process if it goes well, but what happens if it goes wrong? What are the error messages that you're going to see? So an interface is two things. It's like conveying data between human and machine efficiently, but also, very importantly, how does it make you feel? So starting from that, what you realize is that most of the apps on our phones and on our desktops are things that we click when we've got a particular goal in mind. So maybe the goal is to travel somewhere or you know, to get some food or something like that or order from in a restaurant with a QR code. Typically, they're goal-based experiences. So what I think we should do is start thinking, okay, these are experiences that we're having, typically with a goal in mind, to interface between human and machine. And we should start there and work out really how do we best interact with that data whilst making sure that people feel really good whilst they're doing it. Do you think that this is a field that there might be something valuable to gain from the analog world? I'm thinking of, I used to live beneath a sign-making company, and they not only made signs, but they sort of consulted with institutions about how to place them in a way to direct people uh, that they want. You know, for example, something at, at, at museums, where do you place signs to funnel people in the direction you want or even just have them feel like they know where the bathroom is all the time? And there really was a lot of research and science about how what is the maximum distance you can have between signs and make people feel comfortable without feeling obtrusive and and have it blend into the background so i'm that feels like a place where there's there's so much intentionality in the physical world whereas in the digital world it sometimes feel like things just happen accidentally and we leave them where they lie yeah indeed and there's something similar as well like for example on the london underground where they make sure that they don't put signs at the end of escalators because if they do everybody just stops at the end of the escalator and it all backs up (laughs) so you know there's a lot of thought about where to put things and right now a lot of that thinking is actually done by sort of ux engineers ui engineers uh, who are normally employed by a startup which in turn has sort of had to raise some money to actually employ them in the first place um, and a lot of a b testing goes into like what where should we put the buttons you know how should we color things um, it's my feeling that a lot of that can be done by AI in the future. I'm sure we'll get onto that in a bit. Do you think that any of this interest has to do with uh, your your Britishness? I feel like, you know, there's an obsession with the perfect cue, right? Everyone needs to get the perfect cue. What's the perfect cue? What does that mean? Well, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, like the, the cue for when the when the queen died, right? There was this this beautiful, perfectly orderly line for, for miles and miles. The queue is in the British queue, not the and the American line. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I, I didn't understand. Okay, um, yeah, there, that was the thing. I was luckily out of the country when all that was going on. So, yeah. Well, so you you brought up AI, and I think that's really interesting talking about interface in that way because I haven't really heard that articulated very much. When people do the big AI dream, it's often you know 
running resource management efficiently and, and these super large scale stuff. But UI seems like a place that could affect our lives on the daily just as much, but in a less perceptible way. I don't know how much you guys have played with like codecs and uh, ChatGPT to actually make code, but um, to anyone listening, I really advise going to the OpenAI Codex Playground. And with that, you can start typing, any non-programmer can start typing in things like uh, create a circle on the screen, 300 pixels. Uh, when I press the left arrow key, the circle moves to the left and so on. Uh, color the circle like this, make it bounce around. And you can have this interactive conversation. And the nice mm. thing is it, that this has got memory. So you can say things like, when I click the circle, I want to see a confirm box come up and it'll say this and that. Um, and already we're at the very beginning now of like starting to have this interactive uh, semi-graphical, semi-sort of prompt-based conversation with a computer. Now, that's only going to get better and better over time to the point where um, we're only a few years away from people saying, well, hang on a minute, why am I even going to try and learn how to do all these weird JavaScript libraries when I can just, uh, the computer's going to write the code? However, most people stop there, and I think that would be a mistake. I think the real way of using AI to make applications is first of all, define them as experiences where you're sharing data between human and machine and often human and human via machine. Um, and then secondly, to start prioritizing spitting out bytecode that runs on the processor versus this intermediate JavaScript or Ruby or Python or things like that which at the moment is required because the AI isn't sophisticated to do the whole thing. So you have to sort of have this escape hatch where the human will come in and change things. But I really don't think that's the long-term approach. Um, I'm more interested in having these conversations and then what the AI does is it records the intentionality behind what you're trying to achieve. And from that intentionality, it then spits out very optimized, always secure um, bytecode that runs on the device that it's designed to run on. I mean, I get the theory. I have, and I'm not sure whether this is the appropriate place for pushback, but... Please. I think there's, yeah, well, there's a few things that, like, are sort of less than convincing to me. Like, I think the first part is that, like, just from my experience sort of being around computers as a developer and a user, like, one of the main things, or, you know, even as a product manager, uh, one of the main things you notice is that people always want to do kind of, you know, arbitrarily complex things or always have some kind of like customization and edge case. And even in like a simple, the one you gave there, I think there's like kind of two failure modes that seem to me really hard to overcome for a non-programmer. The first is if the thing, you know, I, I've played with chat GPT prompts uh, somewhat. If the thing that you're asking it to do, if it sort of messes it up somewhat in some way and you're not a programmer, um, you're not going to be able to debug it. Like, and so if there's, you know, anywhere in the chain, something is off, uh, you know, you're not going to have any leverage there. But the other thing I would worry about is I think just one thing that like really stands out with especially, you know, like sort of LLM, LLM type approaches, uh, large language models, is that like they're very, you, you can sort of make these associations um, and it's very hard to go beyond them. And I would worry about sort of a similar thing where the user now, you know, they've drawn their circle and they want to add X kind of functionality to link it to something, um, and that can't be done. Or alternatively, I think people 
in software, especially developers, really underestimate the challenges of composability. So like and deployment. So like if you've made your program and you have this like perfect JavaScript or whatever program and it needs to be deployed now, it's like fairly challenging to get to a level of either, you know, of AI where um you know, it does it sort of does the right thing with that generated code uh, and puts it out there for you. So I'm curious, like, whether you see those same problems and see solutions or whether you think that we should sort of, you know, essentially assume them away and just assume that, like, they sort of will get solved. Um, so I certainly don't think we should hand wave them away. I think what we should do is try and come a little bit deeper down to um, thinking about data a little bit more. So data is a very interesting thing because as programmers, we're always dealing with it. Um, and the example I often give is imagine something like an e-commerce site where you've got a credit card and you've got a name and you've got various mailing addresses, delivery billing addresses. Um, now, how many times has that actually been written in human history? Like must be hundreds of thousands of times that someone has set out to make an e-commerce site and try to define a schema for these um, things like mailing addresses. But when you think about it, um, all you're doing is you're going into like a MySQL database or any sort of NoSQL database, finding like fields like address one, address two, city, state, zip, all of this sort of stuff. Um, that problem has been solved over and over again. But the computers are still none the wiser of what that actually is and how it relates to an individual or the fact that, for example, businesses can also have a mailing address. There's no sort of many-to-many -many or one-to-many relationship that's coded into that data. So to really bring on sort of intelligent AI programming, we have to start moving away from data as simple bytes of data which are just passed along the networking layer to having an understanding of how data relates to other data. So that, for example, the UI of the future when you're trying to buy something online, first of all, it should have integrated payments, it should have integrated identity, which is something that Urbit gives you already. But it shouldn't be asking you questions it already knows the answer to. So it won't ask you, like, where do you want it shipped? Because that field will never appear, uh, appear on the UI in the first place. Um, so what I would love to do is to try and see how we can standardize some of these common data formats and one approach to this is to actually borrow some ideas from the crypto world. Um, and uh, so there's a project called Ceramic, um, which is run by Joel, who's, who's great. And basically what Ceramic is trying to do is let you do decentralized data storage. But the way that it works is basically just a series of Postgres tables, decentrally hosted. Um, and if you want to use an existing schema, then you just use it. But if you want to make your own schema, if you want to divert from the common sort of way of doing things, uh, then as far as I understand, there's a, a price to pay for that. And what that does is sort of funnel people down saying, okay, well, I can reuse this data model for an address, so I'm going to use it. And the computer already knows the relationships between that and say a credit card number and a person and so on. So. I think intelligent data is a fundamental part of intelligent UIs. And really, when we, what, what we want to do is start to use AI to actually understand our data. And there's a few other reasons why I think that's a good idea, which we can go into in a second. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think I want to kind of go into some of those, those other areas because I think like what you're you know, what you're talking about makes sense. I'm still, like, not sure that even getting 
that data right and kind of adding that semantic content to it, uh, which also AIs are good at even, you know, generating uh, the mm. semantic content. Um, you know, I'm not convinced that gets you to non-programmers being able to do arbitrary tasks, but actually just because I am super bullish on kind of uh, generate, like sort of being able to have AI automate a lot of those, as you say, like kind of repeated encounters with information. Um, the part I'd really like to get into is what are you seeing right now as paths towards people being able to access or own those AI models without having to, you know, go through an external API. Because I think that opens up like so many of the possibilities for it to, you know, get interesting um, when you're not having to mediate it in that way. Absolutely. Um, so I think like all of us, when uh, DALI came out, I think it was in March this year, um, Part of us thought, wow, this is amazing. And then the second part of us thought, well, why should this amazing tool be in the hands of one company, which calls mm -hmm. itself OpenAI? And we all know it's not truly that open. It's mostly Microsoft these days. Well, isn't the answer that like they made it and so they get to decide what to do with it? <laughs> yeah, that's part of, part of the answer. And they certainly trained it and they, uh, you know, they spent a lot of money doing that. Uh, but the the interesting thing then was to see a few months later that uh, Stable Diffusion came out with an open source line, uh, a license. So much mm -hmm. so that not only does that run on like a sort of M1 chip really well, but it even runs on mobile phones. You can download it on the App Store today and start making your own images on your own device without any network connectivity. So um, really because of Stability AI, I'm much more um, positive about the future now because these there's, they've really set a precedent for releasing these uh, these models as open source. The next thing then is where is that data running and what does it have access to? Because if you sort of fast forward five, ten years, what you realize is that uh, much like the film Her, which was released in 2013, which I really recommend watching, we're going to start moving to the era of personal AIs where the AI itself becomes like a guardian for your data and uh, starts determining what data is starting to, to leave your device. And this, this is very interesting because the way that we do privacy at the moment is so backwards. If you think about uh, as an iOS programmer, for example, what you need to do is you need to give uh, permission to your camera, then you have to give permission to your photo roll, then you need to give permission to your microphone. And... Yeah. None of these things matter. Like, I don't care what accesses my, my microphone or my camera or anything else. The only thing I care about is when the data that's captured from one of those sensors leaves my device and goes off to the internet. Mm, sure. And you know, so this is why understanding the data is so important because what I want the AI to do is throw up a little message and say, hey, you know this picture you took last night? You probably don't want to send this to this person. Are you sure you want to go and do it? Or just simply that this this app that you've installed on your device captured all this audio two days ago and it now wants to send it to this foreign IP address. Are you okay with that? So what I'm interested in is like how do we, by understanding the data, allow some sort of like privacy guardian feature that's built at the OS layer that makes sure that non no data leaves your device unless you're okay with it. But yeah, totally. And that that makes a lot of sense that I hadn't thought of it that way in terms of permissions. I think the other thing I want to, before we even go further, is, you know, go, pulling back on the, <clears throat> you know, open AI versus stable diffusion thing. I'm very logistically minded and I'm wondering where are, when we talk about models for things like, um, you know, either like 
chat or for, um, <clears throat> you know, helping with programming, where are they going to come from <clears throat> in the near future? Like the open models, if presumably open AI isn't going to just release those, like who's making, um, you know, the, uh, those models that will sort of be running these personal devices. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that if you watch the um, Stability AI keynote that was um, came out a few months ago, they've definitely got an intention of open sourcing a lot more models in the future, both around music, uh, Harmony AI, I think it's called. Um, and uh, I hope they will do some sort of like GPT uh, competitor and release that as open source. Um, but they've certainly started the ball rolling there and um, the question then, of course, is like, how big is that model? Can it fit on something like an Urbit ship or uh, a mobile phone? I think it's only a matter of time until it does. Um, and then how do you feed that model with up-to-date data, which is a much harder problem? One interesting thing that sort of, you know, can maybe add a little optimism there is it actually, you actually don't need to be able to run it on an Urbit ship for it, like immediately for it to do that. You just mm. need to be able to have it on your computer so that you could sidecar it out to Urbit. And I'm not... You know, I don't like those kind of sidecar things in general, but it is very doable. And for something that high leverage, I think people would absolutely do it. Or people, it's, you know, not that hard to provide it via Urbit as a service. Like, you know, someone gives you text input and, you know, you send that back to them and you have a very small network of people you're doing that for. So, yeah, I think it really is all about, like, you know, just the models themselves getting out there. Yes. Um, so... Where do you, I mean, where do you think where this is all going when we think about AI programming? Because um, I know that most people would think, well, it's just simply going to be AI, you know, generating Python code, React code, you know, all these sorts hmm. of things. Um, where do you think it's going? Yeah, I think people are sort of right now they're in the kind of euphoric phase of the recent breakthroughs in AI. And while I would, you know, of course be ecstatic if, you know, that moves really quickly into being able to do, you know, what you're saying, like sort of generating arbitrarily complex uh, React interfaces um, or, you know, Python programs, I think there's a chance that, you know, there might be some, you know, some fighting through there and we might be near some of the, you know, edges of what you, what you can get. And so, I'm especially interested in models around, you know, handling programming boilerplate, making it out into the open, along with, you know, for the purpose of programmers to use them, along with making much, much better tools for programmers to make backends and interfaces, which is, you know, what I'm working on probably the most heavily right now in Ookbar. Um, and like, I would really, really like to see AI kind of juicing that in a way, you know, very much like sort of, GitHub Copilot for Urbit programs or something like that, I think is, you know, extremely promising. So for you, you think it's more important right now for AI to optimize uh, tools for developers and people who already have some experience programming rather than opening up development to a larger field of people who don't have as much experience with computers or, you know, like the Yes, the, the I think that... I think that people drastically overrate right now how good life is for developers. I think they think it's way better than it is. And it's actually like a lot crappier and harder. And that's an extremely big underserved market that I think is like, you know, we probably, it will probably be the most productive to unlock first. Sometimes I am too pessimistic about these things. And it turns out you can just sort of bust right through and do the more general thing. 
But my suspicion right now is that we need to start by like acknowledging how bad things are for developers in general and making that significantly better leveraging AI. Yeah, and a few things come to mind. There was like Vitalik's article, right, about using GP3, um, GPT-3, where basically, you know, he, he had to have a lot of knowledge to actually, uh, like it sped up his process, but he was like, you know, if he didn't already have a lot of domain knowledge, it wouldn't have worked at all. Um, you know, and that, that'll probably improve over time for sure. Um, but I also, I guess like a pushback example would just be like, I don't know, Wix and just the standardization of a lot of websites. Um, and how that basically allowed non-coders to be able to make websites. Um, and so I kind of wonder if like that could be a direction we can move to with AI where it's like, okay, if you want like a fairly standard website now, instead of just like a Wix one, you can make a much more complicated website using AI where maybe that's fulfilled like just a very large percent of the total use cases. So there's still, um, there would still be use cases that aren't filled with AI, but it would be like maybe a small portion of the total that people actually want. I mean, that seems very possible to me, but I think that like, that's, well, I guess there, there's, this comes back to the question of these different visions for how AI like affects the world. And one of them is, is super large scale stuff. Like, like I said, like changing how we use energy and like an international system. And some of it is like, oh, these are just day-to-day -day things that are improving our lives more in line with the personal AI thing. And so I think that it's like, I don't know, I find that divide really interesting and thinking about where we end up in, in 10, 15 years. A lot of times the stuff that interests me most is this more personalized experience and Owen I thought what you were saying about it learning how you like a phone learning how you want to use your data and controlling for that was really exciting and um, the idea of it customizing like an interface for you and how you like to use your computer is really cool and I could see how that would apply to something in a in a Wix type scenario but Owen I was interested if um if you had any more examples of what you thought a personal AI might look like and what types of interactions it might take care of and customize for you beyond uh, those examples. Yeah, sure. So um, the reason I think Urbit is such an interesting place for this is because if you think about how most apps work of course the storage of the app is actually not on your phone or on your desktop it's actually on some sort of cloud thing um not all of them have apis so all this app is in like islands of data and none of them talk to each other um so an ai on top of that really wouldn't have access to much data at all it would have to you'd have to sort of connect it to your calendar or something and mm. things like that but if you actually store all the data in one place and then you layer AI on top of that, then by understanding the data, understanding how the calendar works with the email and the sort of friends that you talk to most at this time of day and what context you're in, whether you're on the way to the airport in a hurry or something, then the personal AI would be able to understand things more in context. So it's not going to like give you low-priority notifications. Um, instead, um, the, the other interesting thing is, of course, that 
we all assume at the moment that the user interface that you see on your sort of Twitter client or Reddit client is the same as I see, maybe with dark mode or something like that. But what's to say that it all has to live inside a separate experience anyway? You know, it, why can't you sort of like book an Uber or, you know, do something with Airbnb all on the same screen if it's simply dynamically generated as a one-time only interface just for that particular occasion with your fonts that you like, with the styles that you like, um, and then discard it after, you know, because things can come together uh, as and when you need them in special personalized interfaces that are exactly what you need at the right moment. And then all that you're doing in the background is you're calling decentralized services uh, that do things like, you know, ride sharing and things like that. Um, but as I say before, I think that the way this will go eventually is people will realize they're putting more and more of their own sort of thoughts and private ideas and conversations into this machine. And what they really want is something to have their back, basically. Like, this is why I think like a private AI, its primary job is to protect you. It's to make sure that you don't, uh, you know, send out data uh, to any arbitrary TCP connection, which I think is incredible. Like any app on your phone has access to any arbitrary TCP IP just when you open it up. Like that just shouldn't be the case at all. So it's one of sort of enabling and also one of protecting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it makes total sense that for a tool like this to work effectively, it would it would need to know an incredible amount about you, right? Like it needs to know you better than you know yourself. And with that comes a ton of risk if there aren't security guarantees. And, you know, you can imagine one vision of this future where everything is handled for you in a way that uh, relieves stress and makes everything really nice. And another one where what's happening in the background is you're being completely controlled by the AI, which is not working for you, but learning from your data and sending you to places and manipulating your life in a way that works for other people. Exactly. And those manipulations could be very subtle. It could just be asking, uh, you know, hey, computer, generate an image of an ideal apartment. And when it does that, you know, what is the large screen TV on the wall? Is it a Samsung or an LG or Sony? You know, who is paying for the product placement there? You know, Mm. and these subtle sort of um, subtle things that can be going on uh, in the future, if you don't know where that's coming from, then definitely you will be manipulated. Are you optimistic for these tools to be able to escape like this sort of, I don't know, corporatization, Truman Show uh, product placement like in, in our everyday lives? Uh, do, you, do you think that's something we can achieve or is, it, is everybody just going to sell out and uh, tell us what to buy and how to live? Yeah, I think it'd be a mixture of both, won't it? Um, I think that thankfully there will be these open source models um, it's time will tell whether they're as good as the sort of large scale commercial ones. Um, what's really very obvious though, is now people who have access to these models have such a superpower versus those who don't. So being a graphic designer without something like this, where you can just generate 20 logos on the fly in mid journey, for example, um, you know, without access to that, you simply can't compete. So I think it will become eventually something that is considered a human right, you know, just in the way that, um, you know, it's, it's basically protecting your income stream. You will not be able to compete with someone with these superpowers in the future. And uh, 
So I think, you know, we're in this sort of golden age of AI now. There's no laws, there's no sort of legislation. Um, but over time, I can see the EU passing more and more of these. And where do you see this happening? I think you gave a talk on kind of a Web3 phone. Do you see it happening more on kind of an Arabic computer or on a mobile device? Like, could you kind of go into that and kind of why, why you were quite excited about the Web3 phone and if that's still the case? Sure. Um, so a lot of the interfaces that we've had in crypto so far are all sort of web-based um, interfaces designed for a laptop. And so the typical crypto experience at the moment is you get your MetaMask out, you get your ledger out, you plug them all together, you do some sort of like DEX trade or something. Um, very little attention has been paid to optimizing that experience for the mobile phone. And the reason I think that's just so important is because of how, um, you know, how the vast majority of the world aren't able to afford both a laptop and a mobile phone um, simultaneously. And uh, really, the, the phone is where we're keeping all of our day-to-day -day, uh, ideas and our conversations. Um, and so the, the Web3 phone idea was really a question of, like, we first of all, we need to rethink apps along the lines of what we talked about here. Um, stop, you know, break down the barriers between one square on screen and another so they start talking to each other. Start thinking about composability. Um, and then, of course, on top of that is this issue of like, where do we keep the keys? How do we make sure signing a transaction is a lot more fluid than it is at the moment? Um, so it's some, it's oddly something that I think that uh, Solana is doing in a way that Ethereum isn't at the moment. Um, starting to think more about this thing that lives in your pocket and goes around. And so you can start doing lots of sort of low value things um, when you're around. And then maybe what you do when you do some sort of high value transactions is you plug in a hardware wallet. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I think the uh, there's an idea of access that you you've pointed to and, and, and eventual ubiquity to these tools that I think brings up some questions about just how do we relate to to AI, um, especially when it ends up making more and more choices for us, or at least defining the, the framework of some of our experiences. And I think this brings up something to me that I'm just curious about how you feel about like the human role in, uh, and especially things like creativity in working with AI and whether that is something that we should be concerned about and, and having discussions about. I mean, you, were, you brought up the, the idea of a graphic designer who, um, one who has access to AI and one who doesn't. And um, I, I, you know, there's all discussions that like, is working with AI and art to what degree does creativity belong to people versus machines? Um, it made me think of, I saw something going around Twitter that was a campaign from musicians in the 1920s or, or 30s uh, to stop people from watching movies with sound because it was removing the human experience from art and creation. So, you know, this is not a new question, even with, with AI. So and I, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but I'm wondering if this is something that you are at all concerned about or think it's worth discussing. Where does the human role come in? And is that something that we need to protect? I thought a bit about this, and um, so Sam, Sam Altman gives a really good talk about how the future of AI was not 
anticipated because everybody thought that you know AI would sort of um, get rid of all the legal jobs of write, like writing legal jargon and letters, uh, you know, all the sort of basic programming stuff, the plumbing, um, but that creativity would be untouched and that really AI could never replace creativity. And he makes a point, and I agree, that that everything's turned on its head now. Like creativity is actually the very first thing that has been disrupted within something like uh, DALI. Um, but one thing that isn't, disrupted and one thing that i think humans are there for is that final sort of taste of whether does does this thing actually look any good like or shall we put this uh, you know okay i've had got, got 20 images in front of me but which ones actually look good um that's very very difficult um and i think the more i think about it taste is so underappreciated both in terms of like being a ceo of a company um or anything else, because taste is really about what you exclude and as much as it is about what you include. Um, so I think in terms of elements of taste, uh, humans are very, very much uh, irreplaceable. But in terms of creativity, I think we were just going to start using these tools more and more to generate ideas and to refine things and to say things in the way that somebody else would say them, for example. Um, I, I had this idea a little while ago about this fictitious fictitious product called Apple Afterlife. And what Afterlife would do is it would be released on stage uh, by Tim Cook. And uh, it would basically be a way for you to connect to your loved ones uh, after they pass away. And you would start, you know, like you normally like message someone uh, on iMessage or something. Well, basically you just slide a slider over and now you're talking to an AI representation of them. And you can still ask them questions and they would be answered in the style and sort of level of intelligence that that person probably had and things that they knew about. But I could see this going even more crazy where they'd start inserting those pictures into family photos um, or videos or things like that in the future. Um, so <laughs> things are about to get very strange. And I think about the, the generation of kids born now who I would call this like the AI generation where they're never going to write an essay uh, mm -hmm. sort of in a handcrafted way anymore. That's like this artisan approach to doing everything by hand uh, will first of all become impossible to verify unless you're actually physically in a location. Uh, and secondly, they would just think, well, why would I do this? It would be like, like us like not using a calculator. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested in this. You know, I, I think it's, it's still very undecided of which way it's going to go in my mind, but um, seeing these open source models released certainly gives me a lot of comfort. There's a there's a Black Mirror episode that basically has uh, your your Apple afterlife uh, thing where uh, really uh, <laughs> yeah all of all of someone's social media is analyzed like someone's partner dies and put into oh a robot that, that that looks just like them and you know oh. it's a an uncanny yeah, yeah, experience yeah. the the idea of sliders is interesting to me because I think well if you're gonna do Apple afterlife why not uh, improve on your loved ones? You know, why not make them a little bit funnier, a little bit uh, <laughs> more agreeable? You know, you can have your family reunion without all, with all, all the fighting because finally everybody's nice. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the interesting things at the moment, of course, is like the avatar AI um, thing that, uh, that Levels came out with a few weeks ago, which has now been completely superseded by Lenza, which... Um, that is interesting in itself because one is a self-funded indie startup idea who, uh, you know, who's just very early off the bat with that. 
And then, of course, this much bigger sort of VC-funded startup has just captured the imagination. I think it's probably like number one on the App Store at the moment. Everybody's uploading photos of themselves and getting back, you know, a whole raft of different selfies in like Father Christmas outfits and things like that. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's super interesting how these things have just exploded. And, uh, and what's really interesting to me is that I show these to non-techie people and they're not even amazed. They're like, they, yeah, they think yeah. that computers can do this anyway. So they're like, oh, that's interesting. It's like, that's, no, don't you see how amazing this thing is? That's blown my mind too. I mean, I, that's, I had that experience with, um, you know, chat, uh, GPT-3 where, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer. I, I hang out with a lot of people who, I, um, who are also writers who I met in my MFA program. And I was, you know, having them, I was showing these prompts about like, you know, start a novel set in Montana, epic family journey, and it'll spit out like the first paragraph. And they're like, uh, you know, the, this is kind of cheesy. I'm like, who cares if it's cheesy? You're missing the whole, the whole point. There's this <laughs> revolution. It's like, yeah, there's a cliche about like a cowboy in the sunset, but like, yeah. who cares? You're, it's mind blowing how uh, people, I think people, you're right. that people think that we've been able to do this for like a decade. I almost want to take the contrarian thing there where like, of course, like your point is like completely valid that it's, you know, insane that they're, you know, complaining about this. But I wonder whether there is something there if you think of it from the perspective of um, not, oh, you know, like this could be this could be better. But it's been hard for me to see the ability of, uh, you know, this this newest wave of like AI creative stuff to actually make sort of interesting things that really engage me. And I think like, you know, the verbal content or the written content tends to like sort of converge on like, essentially feels like talking to like a midwit all the time um, who can sort of like put some stuff together and like pass tests, but like, you know, you're just never engaged by the conversation. And like the same goes for like the art all seems to like converge on this sort of like, you know, Reddit type, like, like there's, there doesn't seem like there's, a spark in general. And I understand the idea that like, you know, over time the approaches might like yield more. Um, but I don't know. I've started to, I don't know. I feel like I'm almost becoming them where I'm all, I've already moved on to the phase of like, I think it started when someone posted a thing on Twitter of like, you know, they asked them to like make a Seinfeld scene and it was like, sort of a Seinfeld scene in that like, you know, there's like Jerry and George talking about something and then like, you know, Elaine says something and then Kramer comes in with sort of a, you know, either, you know, punchline or thing, but like none of it was sort of, you know, related. It all just felt very mashed up. And I feel like all of the sort of generative output has started to feel like that for me. Um, I'm sort of more just throwing this out for comment, but mm -hmm. I'm wondering what people think about what that means. And that's also incidentally why I'm like much more bullish on like AI assisting stuff, especially in things like programming. Um, then I, or, you know, some aspects of writing than I am about like sort of generative things or making programs people use or making content that people want. But I, I think you're maybe underestimating the degree to which most of the world finds a lot of utility in middle brow content. Um, that is <laughs> probably most of what is consumed um, in terms of television and even like book sales, right? Like you, like it's a, the best-selling books are still just sort of True. pretty formulaic, uh, like I don't know, mildly erotic romances. And I think about what Owen is saying about no one will ever 
write an essay again is like the the essays that are being spit out by these chatbots are better than any essay I got when I was teaching writing 101 at university. You know, those would those would all be <laughs> A's in my class. And it's not like they're mm-hmm, they're brilliant mm-hmm. essays, but they're just they're competent enough to satisfy needs. So maybe we're still, you know, we're not about to get the great American novel, but we're getting stuff that offers utility to people already. Yeah, I guess and this might be like sort of a reflection of my perspective where I'm like, you know, interested in things mostly that can like, you know, really move the needle in like a top end way. And this just feels like kind of mediocre people instead of writing mediocre essays are having like, you know, the AI write mediocre essays for them. And it's like, I don't know, it's hard for it to spark my imagination in a lot of ways. So um, something interesting happened a few years ago. Uh, I went to this, uh, I think it was like an evening of uh, the, the idea was that, like, can AI make a Broadway show? That was like the idea of the whole evening. Mm. And they brought some people on from Cambridge University who, this is like long before like the AI breakthroughs that we've had this year. But they, they sort of analyzed like what makes a hit Broadway show. And the like, it, if you take all the Broadway shows that are hits, it turns out like the average is like, okay, like some sort of like 20 to 30 year old woman. Normally she's Irish American. Uh, she sort of <laughs> has to get, to get together with somebody in the first act and then it all goes wrong in the second act. And it's, it's all this sort of like very formulaic stuff. And then it's like, well, what are the chord sequences like? Well, you've got certainly no like CG pattern, CGF. Uh, you've got certain like things that they all have in like 11 o'clock numbers and all these sort of uh, famous Broadway shows. Anyway, you feed all this into an AI and then the AI generates the next hit, hit musical. That was the idea. But of course, as you can imagine, what came out was this most mediocre, like painfully just boring, dull thing to listen to. So predictable, like all the chord sequences were were predictable, um, you know, and and you just hear it's very tired. It's like being done many times before, and then compare that to what actually makes a hit Broadway musical. Well, before Hamilton came out, we had nothing that sounded like that. You know, before like Blame Miss came out, we had nothing that sounded like that. So actually, what makes a hit is something that's completely different that comes out of nowhere. And sort of makes you think, oh, you know, yes, it's got elements of things that we've heard before, but it's 80% new and different. And I've always, that's always stuck with me as like, what makes something really a hit? Like, how do you get a hit song? You, you start with something that's similar, but it really has to be very different to really take off. Though I think, I think maybe you're also focusing on this high end stuff, like something like Hamilton and Les Mis, right? They're in the 99th percentile of what this art can look like. But that is not the majority of what is happening on Broadway or what is making money or what most people are seeing, right? Like, like Broadway is not so different from, from blockbuster stuff. It's adaptations and retreads. You know, it's Beetlejuice the musical and SpongeBob the musical. And, you know, actually, I mean, the SpongeBob musical actually is not bad. But... The, I, I like. I think uh, most of of what's actually making money is stuff that's far below that level, and fo- probably follows a lot of these formulas that that could be spit out by it at this point. And maybe you need like you know like a uh, someone to punch it up or something like that. But I really it doesn't feel like most of what people are consuming 
is actually mm. these super high level things, right? There's Broadway's big and they're shuffling through a lot of things and most of them are not Hamilton, you know? So this brings up a really interesting point, which is how do we marry crypto and AI together? So this is, uh, you know, everybody's thinking, well, what's the next crypto AI startup? And I've been thinking about this a bit. And what I've realized is that with this new abundance of content that we're going to get of very mediocre musicals and very mediocre blog posts about, you know, something that's all generated by AI, it's going to become more important than ever to really sift through all that and find the good stuff. Mm. So um, in a way, AI is like digital abundance, whereas crypto is actually artificial digital scarcity. And I think the two are going to come together to enable us to find the content that we really want to see or hear or, you know, or the restaurants that we really want to go to for example, in a way that we've never seen before because we're going to need it to actually sort of sort through all this absolute deluge of content that we're about to be hit with over the, the sort of coming years. Interesting. Can you, can you dive into that? Like how will crypto exactly help you go through this clutter of AI-generated content that we're worried about? Yeah, so um, let's, let's relate it to something that isn't AI at the moment. And if we think about... Um, like rest, going to a restaurant, right? You arrive in a new city, you want to go and eat somewhere. So one of the really crazy things at the moment is that we've still got this five-star system. And what happens is you you find something that's like 4.3 stars and then you read the reviews and it's normally like, this is the best place ever, amazing food. And then the next one is terrible service. They all ignored us. But this is like the same sort of pattern every single time. Mm-hmm. But the real problem is that I am... I have zero interest in what is a four or five star absolute restaurant. What I am interested in is what do people who value the same things that I value rate this restaurant? Mm. You know, so is it, you know, is it the quality of the food? Is it how noisy it is? I think most restaurants are way too noisy and I can't talk to people Mm -hmm. on them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so um, in so many ways, I don't think they should be absolute ratings at all. You know, it's far more about that it should learn about what I care about, or maybe I do tell it. I say, I really want a quiet place. I want really good quality food. I don't want it to be too expensive. And I don't care if it's in sort of really posh part of town. Um, I'd rather go to a family place, for example. And then I want a whole list of restaurants which are rated with stars, but through the specific lens that I'm looking at. So so that's one part of things. Like I, I call that like relative reputation. Um, and then the next thing is, well, okay, so my friends have enjoyed this piece of content. They enjoyed um, this, uh, this film or whatever it was. Um, I think in the future what we're going to see is people staking reputation points, much in the same that we do stake you know, USDC on a DEX or something like that, but in a way of saying, look, I really value this thing. I'm going to put something of value behind it, and that is a signal to other people who also believe in the same things, also have the same values, that this is actually worth your attention. Because really what we're doing here is we're trying to sift through this mess of maze of content and saying, what is worth your attention? Um, So I think this is where crypto is going to come in. And really all crypto is really, it's like it's global state, it's a global consensus layer. And I think this will be used to store um, your ratings, your reputation, and the things that you find of value and that will be used as a signal to other people. So it, it seems like you are really viewing a lot of um, 
our future interaction with technology as, as roles of curators. I mean, there's um, so much data out there already and so many options for ways to spend our time that are only going to be more efficiently organized as AI is optimized, um, that there's going to be real value for someone who can sift through all this for people. Yeah, indeed. And I think it'll still come down to humans to do that. Um, But I think what we'll do is we'll put some weight behind it. We'll say, look, this is something that I really think you'll value. And perhaps you can stake some sort of points on that. Uh, It doesn't have to be financial. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, But any of your followers will be able to see that. A good sort of way to do this sort of thing would be on something like Lens Protocol, where you could say, okay, these are the people I already value following. But let's say everyone starts with 10,000 points or something, and then you can apportion them to things that you think are worthy of attention. And then other people can learn and say, okay, I really like these people. And much in the same way that you go to the opticians and they they sort of put different lenses in front of you, like they slide them in and out until they work out what your prescription is. What you'll be doing in the future is you'll be looking at content through multiple lenses of people that you value and respect. And those lenses will be highlighting certain pieces of content and filtering others out. Wow. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I think I'd, I'd like to ask you, Owen, this, this conversation has been really great because I think it's present, uh, presented a a pretty optimistic view of at least one future that could exist um, when we use these technologies and all of the ways that this could change our life for the better. I think, you know, I came to AI with <laughs> with a little bit of fear that I think some people have. Uh, a, f- a few years ago for a course on transhumanism, uh, we read a book called Our Final Invention about AI, which has really burrowed into my my brain. So I, I'm curious if you, as someone who's an AI enthusiast, um, do you just th- believe in this, this positive vision for the future really absolutely? Or what are some fears or trepidations that you have? And uh, more pointedly, is is AGI, which is a little bit different than we're talking about, a threat to us? <laughs> Should I be worried? We're going here. It's changed some things already, hasn't it? So I remember when Dali came out, the day after I started seeing like regular artists posting things, I just started thinking, hmm, you know, maybe I don't value this this art as much as I did yesterday. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, what exactly has gone into this? How much effort has gone into it? And certainly any sort of like canvas painting you see in a museum, you can certainly step back and say, well, there's no way that was created with AI. And, you know, the artists suddenly got all the reflections correct and so on. Um, but now like somebody posted a poem on Twitter and I just thought, well, in, maybe I would have read this a few weeks ago. But now I just think that's just been, you know, trotted off with G- chat gpt in a few seconds so <laughs> so it's already changing how, how how i think we we see things um i think one of the mistakes we all make is that we all think okay there's this big sort of train coming towards us it's called ai or crypto or whatever it is and we are just like on the sidelines watching this thing happen whereas the reality is like we are shaping the universe with every action that we take, with every podcast that we make and so on. So we are very much in control of how this goes. Um, and I think it's up to us to say, well, what is the positive future that we do want from this? We can't uninvent it. We can't put the cat back in the bag. Um, we mustn't sort of take a negative view of it. But at the same time, we should be very sure to shape it in a way that really does 
um, sort of come back to the sort of key things that humans always want. Um, it amazes me why, why when people say, oh, I don't know what product to make or I don't know what app to make, you can bring it all back to the same commonalities that we all share. You know, we all want to uh, be more connected. We all want to feel more connected with other people. Uh, we all want to express ourselves more. You know, we all want to live our full lives. Um, you know, we all want uh, to to have self-love and sort of love ourselves more. And by that, we love other people. So the, the, the AI, I think, that we want needs to be sort of directed in these things that you know, in these areas that really pertain to us all. Um, and if we keep on that track, I think we'll, we will be good. The danger and the negative stuff for me is when it gets in the hands of like Google or Microsoft or Apple and it starts selling you products, you know, it starts not telling you about something or, you know, you ask it about something like, you know, free energy or something like that. And, you know, it, it makes a very sort of one-sided approach on it. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it would be silly to go in without any uh, reservations at all, but I really think that we're in the driving seat and it's conversations like this that really help. Mm. In, in terms of that kind of like negative future of Google or some other large company just controlling it, you talked earlier about kind of giving up on the old web and kind of the issues with walled gardens of data that like the AI wouldn't really have access to across applications and companies. So I guess, do you, do you think at that, that that sort of dystopian future is that likely or do you see it more as like um, inevitably uh, those will get outcompeted because they don't have access to enough data to train on and to personalize to and it's that personalization that people are really hungry for I think it is the personalization but unfortunately I think Google has immense access to data uh, both in reading all your Gmail messages uh, you know every time you know not only what you search for but the frequency of which you search for and the time of day that you search for something um so it's not like they're going to be short of data um but having said that you know if we redefine apps and think a bit more broadly about apps as more experiences that are created on the fly to help a human interface with data then i still feel that over time people will realize that something like urbit where you're actually owning all of your data and you're layering apps and AI on top of that will eventually give you experiences that you can't get uh, from Google or from Apple. And this is really the key to it. You know, the, the reason why people buy uh, Xboxes and Playstations is because they want a specific game that they can't get elsewhere. And I think if you really want people to come into something new like Ethereum or Urbit, you've got to give them experiences that they simply cannot get elsewhere. Yeah. So, oh, and I think we've been at this very, um, you know, sort of expansive, um, ambitious level for a lot of this. And I always try to keep things then sort of recentered to, you know, the more immediate future. So what do you think is the highest leverage problem to solve over the next year in generally in computing? We've talked about AI, crypto, um, you know, programming, composability, et cetera. What, what is the thing that you think is reasonable to sort of get done in the next year that you think is the highest leverage thing to tackle? Okay, so I think my answer may disappoint you somewhat because um, I think it would be very easy to point to something like, okay, we should make developer tools better or, you know, we should, uh, you know, what well, one thing I think that we should do, and I really agree, is that we really should start focusing on mobile phones as a, the default interface into the sort of crypto layer two world. Uh, mm -hmm. And indeed, Urbit as well. I really think that should be a massive priority more than it is at the moment. 
But um, I already feel there are people working on all of these things. What nobody is working on at the moment, from what I know, and if anyone is, I'd love to be in touch with them, is to start thinking about how do no how do non-programmers start taking their ideas out of their head, you know, both for new apps and new businesses that they want to build, and then utilize some of the tools that we built in Ethereum and in Urbit and other similar projects to start expressing those in a way where other people can use them. Because I really think that's that's the multi-billion dollar opportunity, if you want to put a, a figure on it, very crude, but it really is. It's like everyone, for all the people that we meet at crypto conferences, most of them will come up and say, oh, I can't really code, I don't really think I should be here. Um, and then there's all the people who didn't have the ability to come there. And yet they've all, they've all got ideas. You know, nobody's talking about how cool it would be to like sit in a bar and just start a business. Like, you know, so oh, let's just start something right now. Here, let's put it on the blockchain. Here, we've got a token, we've got a bank account sort of thing. Um, and, you know, so in many ways, I feel like all the sort of basic um, next step stuff is already taken care of. And I really think what's missing in competing now is stepping back a bit and saying, how can we do interfaces differently? You know, I, I think the, the native UI. Uh, project of Urbit is very good. There's also one called Secure Render, which Mark Nadal from Gun.js is working on, which is also another sort of big rethink of what UI could be. So personally, I'm way more interested in these sort of big visionary things, even though there may be no, nothing to show from it for a few years. Indeed, there was nothing to show from Urbit for many years, um, but I still think it's important to work on it. Yeah, I'm actually, I've gotten more and more interested in, um, you know, practical approaches to the UI side. I guess I actually sort of, bundle that into what you might call or in some cases dismiss as dev tools. But I think it's like this set of things that are upstream of what people can actually make uh, that are kind of ambitious projects that are big limiters. And I think like sort of, um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more about sort of crypto in general that needs that. But yeah, I actually strongly agree that everything related to creating UIs um, is a very overlooked part of computing. I think because it's weirdly, I know people kind of fetishize UX, but just the nuts and bolts of how you make an interface for users is, is very looked down upon and seen as something of a commodity, I think, in a lot of cases. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting answer. And there's a really difficult task as well. You know, it, most of it is sort of like plumbing in, uh, a schema which you have to then validate all the forms on the client side with some nice red boxes and error messages in the right language and then you've got to do the whole thing again on the server and and you just think like you know 25 years of programming i've been doing this and nobody's invented anything better you know i just can't believe it so um so i really think that those are the big issues and honestly that it, even though it may be hard to picture what this looks like yet that anyone who invents anything that lets uh, regular people who don't know how to code make even the smallest sort of thing that they can call their, their own with their own ideas in it, with their own UI, their own sort of design, it's going to be so, so popular. And then, of course, over time, even though the, the, the real programmers will poo-poo it and say, oh, it can't do this, it can't do that, and they give it a few years and the capabilities will increase and increase. Before long, it will be seen as, well, why are you hand-coding this UI out? You know, you must be an idiot. Um, mm -hmm. so, um, so that's the way that things progress. And, and it's not, uh, this is why I'm really, really sure that we must not go to, like, human-readable code. We must go straight from intention and goal straight to bytecode. And anything else is a distraction. 
Interesting. Awesome. Interesting. Well, Owen, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and we've, we've covered so much here, but I think it's, it's really given me a lot to, to think about and to, to hope for and to be excited about, which is a, I love when I can <laughs> end a conversation, uh, feeling really excited for the future and what's coming. And uh, this has just done uh, so much for me there. So, uh, yeah, thanks again for, for joining us. I really encourage everyone to go check out Owen's website and some of his other talks, which are just as uh, informative and interesting. And, Owen, what's the, what's the best way for, for people to get in touch with you if they want to follow up on any of these ideas? Sure. Um, well, thanks a lot. And uh, I'd say the best way is probably email. It's owen at owenbarnes.com. Uh, and the second best way, which uh, I'm going to be hanging out on Urbit more and more and as I'm learning more. So if anyone wants to teach me more about Urbit, I'm wide open and I would love to do that. Yeah. Uh, the nice thing about Urbit is there's there's plenty of teachers. So we'll, we'll make sure to put um, Owen's uh, Urbit ID and his email in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks again so much for, for joining us. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. Yeah, thanks right. so much. See everybody next time. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Network Age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting you know great guests, and giving you what you want if you can just help us with a few things uh subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice uh give us a good rating if you liked it you know hit that five stars and our twitters are in the show notes for me bitchell and Nilrun. so follow us retweet promote the show and we will keep giving you that amazing network age content that you love